Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, tell your neighbor, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. And if uh, you're not sure where that's at, it's about in the middle of the New Testament. So if you go to Romans, keep going right. If you end up in 1 Corinthians, keep going past that. It's before 2 Thessalonians. If you need another mile marker or signpost, not in the book of Narnia. We're, we're done with the book of Narnia today, unless some illusion should pop into my head. Hey, if we do our if we do our work right, we'll get through one whole verse this morning. We're going to look at First um, Thessalonians chapter one and uh, verse one. Let's read it together. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. All right, we'll pause there. <laughs> All right, the Thessalonian letters um, may be the earliest of Paul's letters. I don't know if you knew that. By the way, we, we did turn the lights down because we got a flickering bulb. And if you're not distracted, I might be distracted. But just promise me you won't go to sleep with uh, dimmer lights. The, the Thessalonians letters might be the earliest of Paul's letters. And if um, they are, they were probably written not long after his visit to Thessalonica. Uh, the other challengers for the earliest books in the New Testament are uh, James. That's one that some people think is the first that's written and. You might say, well, I thought Matthew was first. They group the, they group the New Testament writings uh, topically, not um, chronologically. So if you look chronologically, you probably see either James or 1 Thessalonians or Galatians. That's another popular one for the earliest written books of the New Testament. Uh, but there's really not any way to decide which one's first. I don't think we probably care that much. But because it appears to be written near his visit to Thessalonica... And also, we think it's one of the earliest ones because of the way that he introduces himself in the letter. He doesn't include some of the normal things that maybe would be established after he's written a few of these. There's kind of a pattern that begins to establish. And up to this point, um, he just says, if you'll notice the first thing uh, here, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Okay, he doesn't, he doesn't say here anything about him being an apostle or anything about him being a servant of God. Sometimes he says, Paul, a servant of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, here it's just Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He groups his traveling companions with him. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I think we can assume that whatever Paul writes here, he's not only writing with the authority that God has given him as an apostle, but but also these other these other two guys that are mentioned with him are supportive of what Paul is writing. They, they have their names attached to this letter. And so uh, it's not that they need to add anything to his apostolic authority be- besides the most significant thing about any book in the New Testament is that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and it applies to our lives along with theirs. And so that's something to notice. The normal way that Paul addresses himself is not uh, with just this brevity that he uses here. Okay, I'd like you to notice the second thing, and, and maybe related to this too, before, before I move on, is that early on in Paul's ministry, he doesn't have to use the, uh, he's not confronted so much with the difficulties of ministry that begins to pile up later, and maybe he doesn't find a need because he's not yet dealing with the superegos of these so-called apostles that are, are going through uh, the churches that he's started, um, but maybe that's one reason he doesn't need he doesn't feel the need to say apostle servant of god he's just writing to them they know who he is the next thing is i'd like you to notice that um in this letter that he has he has uh, accompanied himself with silas and timothy here these are this is often the case not just here but timothy is part of a lot of the letters that Paul's written. And this suggests to me that this isn't only Paul, but this is a consensus of the apostles as they write with authority. And this letter is ri- written to a difficult place within the church. He's writing to encourage. And it was difficult because the church that first got this letter lived in a place where they believed in lots of gods. And that might sound foreign to us, but 
It's not. We just don't worship gods usually that are uh, made to look like idols with faces. But we have other kinds of gods. And, and so there's a similarity in the life experience. There's a similarity in the application between this letter and its uh, context and ours. And uh, he here is writing to a church that believes in that. And that day, gods were worshipped more out of fear than devotion. And so people had things they didn't want to let go of because they were afraid that uh, something in their life would fall apart if they didn't venerate one god or another. And, and many times they, they had to run about throughout the month offering different sacrifices and burning different incense in order not to offend a certain god on their day of the month. Sounds weird to say, sorry. But they didn't want to offend the god because then something bad might take place in their lives. And so they were trying to avoid all of that. So it was more out of fear than it was out of love and devotion. And because of where Thessalonica sits, it sits on a a major road, the Via Ignatia, that travels east to west from the eastern area to a place where they could get on a little ferry and cross over to Italy and come to Rome. And so because it was on a major highway, all of the world's religions came through, and there were lots of merchants that brought their little religious trinkets that you needed to buy in order to protect your home from some kind of calamity. And so there were, they, were, they were very superstitious. And if you came to Thessalonica, you would pass through this arch that was dedicated to the two gods that were responsible for uh, seafaring. And so all of these things indicated this, uh, this major problem with idolatry in Thessalonica. In fact, Paul's going to say to them a little bit later, you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And, and I would suggest to you that even though it seems that we weren't idol worshipers before, we were, and that we have to come in the same way away from our false gods and serve the living and the true God. And so it was difficult in the, that situation because the preaching of Christ represented a cosmic conflict in people's lives between old allegiances, between old superstitions, and the God who is real. And folks, that's not too far from home for us, that there are there is uh, different things that we go through in life that we're, we're concerned about, that uh, we give credit to other things, and we don't trust the Lord in those things. I've got this book called The Dictionary of Superstitions, and it's kind of interesting because it talks about different superstitions. There's a superstition out there, and this is a common, uh, probably you don't know somebody, but this is a modern superstition. This doesn't go way back. And uh, as a general rule, when putting on clothes, listen, because you're going to want to know this if you want to be superstitious, you should always begin with the right arm and the right foot, okay? You don't want to invite misfortune. And if you accidentally put your clothes on inside out, then the way to um, pay penance for that or deal with that is to leave it that way all day long until you take it off. It's like your way of repaying the fates for not uh, putting your clothes on right in the first place. Some kind of penance. And so uh, clothing. And uh, there are people that are like this, like um, even today, there are people that when the ball game is on, they got to wear their lucky socks or their team won't win. Okay, And I hope you know as Christians, that's ridiculous. Okay, That that doesn't affect... The, and some people will do it when they're watching a recorded game. What difference does that make? <laughs> it's already settled, right? All right. And then, um, but the fates apparently would know ahead of time that you weren't going to wear your lucky socks. Then there's a superstition about accidents. Um, this one supposes that misfortunes such as a sick animal or broken pots, like if you drop a, a pot or a, a bowl, plate on the floor and it shatters, that uh, those things are caused by uh, things happening within the world like uh, the moon phase, the phase of the moon, that you drop that because the moon was in a particular phase and... Uh, the flowering of a certain kind of plants in Middle England, there's, there's, there was a belief that uh, when the bean plants sprouted, there was going to be lots of accidents. So just prepare yourself, uh, probably because <laughs> the bean plants were sprouting, people were getting a little more sweaty, and their fingers were a little slippery, I don't know. 
But then uh, other people believed that they had stepped on ley lines. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but ley lines are the belief that there's these invisible lines that crisscross the land that possess strange powers. And if you step on them, then it creates some kind of a misfortune or an accident in your life. And others believe that things like broken pots or pans or if a picture picture falls off the wall and nobody has touched it, that it's caused by devils or the fates. And um, these are bad omens. And I don't don't know if you know about this, but some people in Japan believe, actually in a good omen, that if you accidentally spill your medicine, that it believes that the sickness for which you need medicine is going to go away. It's good news, isn't it? So all of these things are superstitions. These are popular superstitions, and people give credit to the wrong kinds of things in the world. And this is a little bit about where uh, Paul is addressing the Thessalonian church, is that if you're trusting Christ, that you have a different source of life, and that the things that we often thought in the past... They call, Paul calls them the rudimentary elements. They no longer hold that power over your life anymore because Christ has come in and changed things. And so I would suggest to you that if you're a Christian, you should not be involved in fortune-telling. You should not be involved in horoscopes. At the very best, they're, um, they're fake. And at the very worst, they're demonically inspired. Okay, So we shouldn't be involved in those kind of things. Our future doesn't come from those things. They don't come from the alignment of planets. Our destiny is not determined based upon what some newspaper writer is. If, I don't know if anybody gets <laughs> newspapers anymore. Somebody has put upon uh, the horoscope that says this is what your day is going to hold. It's not determined like that. You might say, okay, but some, sometime in the past, something like that's come true. There's two reasons for that. One is that things are written generally enough that it can come true. Number two is that there are times when Satan can inspire things that will come true in order to get us to believe the lie. And so I would just suggest that we be very careful and not get entangled in that kind of thing because we serve a God who does care for us and who overlooks us. What's that got to do with our verse? Well, a lot here, actually. When we understand the Bible, we can know that unexplained things happen in the world, but our destiny is not controlled by fate or by luck, or by spirits, but by God. I don't think that the Bible teaches that everything that happens is by design. And I want to be very clear on that. You may have a different view on that. I think that sometimes there are accidents. It seems to me when Jesus talks about the tower falling on those certain people, that he's suggesting that some engineer somewhere made a mistake. Sorry, engineers. But that something fell and something happened. It wasn't because they had done something evil. Okay? It suggests to me that we live in a world that's fallen, and there are things that happen, and yet, with that, God can still work out His purposes in and through us. Thank God for that. I think He can overcome all to accomplish His purpose for those who are trusting Him. I'd like you to notice here that Paul, Silas, and Timothy have written to the church of the Thessalonians, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, when we hear the word church, so many things come to mind, right? I don't know if you grew up in church, uh, going to church with your family, but one of the things I remember from church, we went to a certain crusade uh, one Sunday afternoon, and my mom decided I needed to wear fancy shoes, but my fancy shoes didn't fit me anymore. But she didn't care because she wanted me to look a certain way because we were going to church. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So she jammed my feet into those whatever size they were, and we went on our way. Mom, my feet hurt. I don't care. You'll be okay. And and I was, but I'm still a little bit scarred from it. But I think of different things, and we, we think of different things when we talk about church, and we mention the word church, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage that has attached itself to the idea of church since Paul wrote this letter. Um, it seems to me that one way to describe this is what came to mind. Uh, I went dip netting this year, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been or not, but one thing that can happen is usually in the evening when the tide goes out, it gets really a really strong current. Can I get a witness? Okay, and we're talking about the mouth of the Kenai here. And as it's going out, it's getting harder and harder to hold that net. And simultaneously, 
what's happening is that your net is filling up with old fish heads and seaweed. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? And uh, it's not exactly accomplished. Sometimes you still catch fish, but it's not as glorious as it's supposed to be. And I think that's a good way to describe what's happened with the word church is that uh, we got our net out in the water and it's gained a lot of extra stuff. And that's kind of where we're at. And it's a little bit hard to hold on to the real, the real definition of what a church is supposed to be. And so I want to talk about that, the, the definition of a church. I think it's healthy for us to know what a church is because it's been misused. Sometimes when we hear church, we think of a building. Like, there's my church. We drive past this. That's my church. Well, if we're really splitting hairs about it, this is not the church. This building's not the church. Because when everybody's out of it, and you're gone and I'm gone, it's not functioning as the organism of the body of Christ, like it, like the church is. Are you, are you with me on that? That in, in a sense, this, is, this building's not the church. This is where the church meets. So if we're really being accurate about it, when we drive past, we say, that's where my church meets. I'm not going to be the grammar police on that, but I just want to, I want us to be clear in our minds that there's a distinction. The church is the person sitting next to you, believing in Christ, you believing in Christ, us together worshiping God. There, there's the church. The other thing that we, we think of is the church is a program, okay? So, like, it's what we do when we come together. We're going to church. Church has started, and so now we think of it as the program. Like, um, you know, I've, I've heard this a lot, and Maybe we could do a better job of it, but um, we don't always start right at 11 in terms of our program. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. I've, I don't remember a time we've ever done that, but lots of people have said, I don't always start church on time. And my thought is this, is that church starts when we gather. Do you know what I mean? The program starts later, but church starts when we gather because we are the church, and it's more than just us starting to sing a song or doing going through the program. Church is us gathering together. And so already we're functioning as the church before any kind of program has started. And so I think it's important to kind of keep those things separate in our mind too, that we are the church when on Thursday you call somebody that you know of, that you fellowship with in the body of Christ, and you say, how are you doing? Okay, uh, I'm concerned about it. God's, God's got you on my heart. I just want to know if everything's all right. I'll let you know I'm praying for you. Or when you get together at 242 and we're at people's homes, that's the church, okay? That's the church getting together. Uh, I know that this summer there were a group of moms that would get together uh, during a certain time. That's the church getting together. It's not just this. It's not just this time frame. Um, it's not just this building. And some people want to say the church is a denomination like the Church of God, or the Church of Christ, or the the church is, is more than that. I know there's an invisible aspect of the church because all across this city and all across this globe, there are people that are meeting. And even if they're not meeting, they have that mystic union of being united in Christ. And so we are the church. Um, I think the Reformers call that the church invisible. You don't see You don't see all that God has done in terms of this. It's spread all across this globe, and not only through this globe at the present time, but back through history as well, okay? That's the church, and so it's more than just this present moment, where we are, what we're doing. It's about who we are in Christ. That's big. That's big time. We start grabbing, um, getting our mind wrapped around that, and it changes a little bit about the way we do church. It's not just a Sunday thing. This is an everyday thing that we're a part of. We're part of something that is eternal. And I always think about this. It challenges me. If you don't like somebody at church, you better get used to it because if when we go to heaven, we're going to be together a long, long time. And this is great practice for heaven. Okay, That's what this is for, is for us to be perfected in our character because we will be together for eternity. Okay, And so that uh, ought to challenge us as well. So church means more than all of that. When, when you heard the word church, when Paul writes this word here, see, I said we're going to deal with one verse. You're probably glad for that. But when he writes the word church, he uses, he uses the Greek word ekklesia, ekklesia, okay? 
And that word has connotations to it that we don't get. Because when you think of church, you probably don't think of Old Testament Israel. And when you hear church, you probably don't think of the citizens gathering in a city. But that would have been the immediate thought that these early believers would have had. They would have connected it with the Old Testament people of God. Because when they translated those scriptures into Greek, the Old Testament, the word they used for the assembly of Israel was ecclesia, church. Okay, So it's a gathering of God's people. But the other thing is, is when citizens... Now, something we have to keep in mind is that not every person who lived in a city was a citizen. Okay, Citizens were those with certain rights and privileges that were part of the group, the citizenry. And when they came together for the public meeting... Those who were citizens gathered in what was ecclesia. And so it would have been recognized as a distinct group of people with privileges and rights because of their citizenship. Okay, So couple those two together, and we have a church in Thessalonica that is both Jewish and Gentile. And those two things would have come together whenever Paul said the ecclesia in God, in Christ. So they would have thought about themselves as a people gathered together who are part of God's purpose. So if we get these two ideas together, it really helps us understand what the church is as the people of God, but locally represented within a city. So notice the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, look at this. To the church of the Thessalonians, this is people within that city, who are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is, uh, if you if you want to call it this, this is the two locations of the people of God. I'd like you to think about this. We're not getting uh, overly philosophical here, but um, he mentions two kind of aspects of who they are. First of all, Thessalonica, and secondly, in God. Okay, so... That tells us about uh, two realities. It shows us that while we live in the world physically, we are at the same time living in God. Okay, Folks, I don't know if you know how important that is. We sometimes forget it. We walk away from this place maybe, and uh, we've forgotten the sermon. This makes me sad, but I know it's true. By the time we hit a, our car door, we've forgotten what God's done here sometimes. I know that because I grew up in church. And sometimes I couldn't wait to get out of there. I want to get the conviction off me and get back to the real world out there. But the real world, as a Christian, includes everything that we are being in God. Did you know that? Everything that we are. It's all that we do. We don't, we don't, have double, we don't double our sins when we do them in this building. Everywhere we go in God, he's a witness to all that we do. Okay? In fact, uh, there's a sense in which you are superior to this building. Okay, so think about this: that when you when you go, God's presence is everywhere present. You know that, right? That He's omnipresent; He's everywhere present. But He's chosen to dwell in a special way. I would call it like an incarnational presence. I don't want to get weird, and it's don't go in the direction of Jesus-like in in that sense, but. But God dwells with flesh in us. Did you know that? Amen. You're looking at me like I'm, I've lost my rocker here. He dwell, I'm not getting off into weirdness. You're not the next coming of the Messiah. I'm saying that God dwells within us, and we are vehicles of his presence everywhere we go. And the beauty of that, I think, is that uh, we understand that he's with us equally when we're at home as he is here. There's something special that happens when we come together. The, the visible body of Christ is displayed when we come together. And there's something there that is unique and special. But superior to this building by itself is you with the presence of God in you. So we go and we're living in the presence of God. Simultaneously, we're living in Anchorage. We have jobs. Some of you are retired, but uh, from what I hear... You're probably as busy now as you were when you were working. <laughs> so we have things that we do. We live in the real world. We've got to fix flat tires and pay our taxes and and uh, deal with troublesome people and traffic. And I don't want to depress you with all that, but you know what I'm talking about. There's real world stuff. And we have to live with neighbors. Come on, right? 
But all the while we're doing that, we're also in God. And I think this is what's really fabulous about this is that we are physically living in this world, but at the same time we're living in God. And if you think of two physical locations, you're going to stumble over this. But if you understand that one is a physical place and the other is a spiritual condition, then we're getting a little closer to the meaning. Maybe a, a way to look at this would be to imagine yourself imagine yourself as an Alaskan citizen. All right, that's hard to do. Okay, so you have that reality about you. And if you were to travel to Oklahoma, I chose that very particularly. If you were to travel to Oklahoma and to spend some time there, probably you're going to meet a lot of people who are going to go like, wow, what's living in Alaska like? And you have all of the privileges of living in Alaska, you know, the beautiful mountains. And if you like to hunt and fish, you can do all that. If you like to ski or snowboard, you can do that. Um, if you like to shovel snow, you can do that. There's all these joys about being from Alaska and uh, it's majestic, and there's privileges and rights that go along with that. And while you're in Oklahoma physically, you're in a different space. Are you with me? But what's true of you is that you're still an Alaska citizen. You've got your driver's license. You've got your home here. All of those things are true of you. Okay. Now, where this breaks down is the fact that we're still talking about two places. But maybe imagine yourself as a Nobel Prize winner. Okay, You're part of an elite club who... You won the Nobel Prize in Literature, but you haven't told us yet. Okay, and so now you go to wherever you go in the world, and you're still part of this select club of Nobel Prize winners. And that's true of you wherever you are. And even though it's in the past, and I don't know if Nobel Prize winners get together or if they don't, but whether they get together or not, you're part of this elite club, and you get to carry that with you wherever you go. And I think being in God is kind of like that. It's not something that we've accomplished it's something that we have by virtue of God's goodness to us. But it's true of us, even though we have to, have to, we get to live in this present world, and though we deal with things that are broken, every human institution is prone to failure, there's broken things all around us, and yet there's reality about us that's fixed and whole because of what God's done. Are you with me? And, and so that we can, in the middle of all this brokenness, we can bring wholeness, not because we have it of ourselves, but we have it in God, and he can bring wholeness to the world through us. So as he says, you're a church in Thessalonica, or of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about two realities. He's talking about the physical reality in which we live with all of our circumstantial stuff that we deal with. But another reality that kind of superimposes upon all that, that we are the church in God. Oh, I wish I could explain. I wish I could express it. My, my heart wells up with this, and I think maybe there's some still some part of this that needs to be unlocked for us. But the point is, is that we are in God. So tomorrow, let's, uh, you go to work, and you're going to deal maybe with an employer that's a little bit surly. Are people still surly? Maybe that's an old word. I think they are. We just call it something different. Grumpy, maybe. And you're going to deal with circumstances that didn't quite go right. You'd planned as best you could, and it didn't quite go right at your job. And and uh, yet, and we're going to encounter people that maybe are a little difficult that really need Jesus. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond like the church in in God, or are we going to respond in a different way? And there's, there's more to this, which I'll come to in just a moment. So when we say that we are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this isn't, this isn't now two further realities. This is one reality, that we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ uh, because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We get to be in God. I'm not troubled by the fact that the Spirit's not mentioned here. Uh, that's true, too. You can see that throughout this letter and other places. Um, the fact is that we are in we are in God in the middle of this. What does that mean? I think it means four things quickly. Number one, I think it means that we have fellowship with God through Christ. This is relationship that's been established and growing. And if you know the rest of Scripture, you know that our sin separated us from God, but God was in Christ in the world reconciling to us uh, through himself, through Christ, to him, 
by Christ dying for our sins. So fellowship has been restored, not because God thinks we're super special and, and you know what, he, he does, but it's more than that. It's by virtue of Christ taking our sins and all of our unworthiness upon himself so that we could be restored in relationship with God. Thank God for that. So we now have fellowship, and that means that we can pray. That means that we can call upon God when we need him. That means that we can rely upon God even um, in a kind of trust that isn't always expressed in words. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's one thing to say, Lord, I need you now. It's another thing to have kind of a latent trust along with that prayer life that says, and I trust you even when I don't know what to pray. Come on. You know what I'm talking about? There's fellowship there. We can, we can rely upon the Lord through that. And fellowship means more than that because not only do we get to speak to God, but he can speak to us. And there is a communion that happens apart from words. If we have any old married couples here, you probably know that you don't always have to talk when you're together. Okay? I'm, that's not a command. That's, not a, that's an observation. <laughs> that there is a comfort just being in one another's presence. Not everything has to be said and expressed. Sometimes you even know what the other person's thinking ahead of them because there's a, there's a communion that takes place that goes beyond just words. You, you know what I mean? And that can, that can happen certainly with God too. I'm not suggesting we diminish our prayer life. We could all, we could all pray more. But I'm saying that in addition to prayer life, there's an unspoken trust that we have in God, and it creates this opportunity for fellowship. We can't have fellowship without trusting him. We'll always be at odds. We'll always be suspicious. But fellowship is part of being in the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second is that when we are in the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we are distinguished by God in Christ. Distinguished. Remember I said the citizens were those who had special privileges and rights. Not everybody who lived in Philippi were citizens of Philippi. I know we're in Thessalonica here, but that's the same as true there. Not everybody who lived in Thessalonica had citizenship. There were special privileges for those who did. And you know that that whole social structure was broken just as ours is, but um, there were those who were citizens, and those citizens got to be distinguished. Now, if you think that that's pride, that we're saying the church has distinguished privileges, let me remind you that God wants everybody to be in this. Okay, It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He died for the sins of the world. He, he wants all to be a part of this, but he knows not all will. And so those who choose him have the rights to become children of God. Right? We have that special distinction and privilege, and it says that you are in God. Not all of the world is living in God. You know that. So there's a distinction that's there. There's a mark that's there. In the book of Revelation, uh, he knows us by name, you know. There's a book that is a register of all those that are in the, in the family of God, right? And we call it the Lamb's Book of, right? And so there is, there's a distinction that's made there. The third thing is this, is that to be in Christ means that we are united in Christ. As we come together towards that concentric point, central point, we are, we are moving together. And so what that means is that uh, we are brought together because of him and not because it's natural. C.S. Lewis has this uh, essay that he wrote. I think it's on the reading of old books. And he talks about how when you visit somebody's house, you find that if they have a library, it's not books that you've chosen. But when you come to a, a bookshelf like that, they're not books you've chosen. Every book in your library is something you've chosen that you want to be there. But you go to somebody else's and you might find this special treasure you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. But because you happen to be in that circumstance, you found that there was something there that you needed all your life. Okay, And I think that in some ways the church is like this, is that we don't choose who we are in terms of the family of God. We don't get to choose who we get to, well, you can more these days than you could in the past. But to a large degree you're going to find that as we gather, it's an eclectic bunch, right? An eclectic is another word for, well, it's not far from eccentric, <laughs> right? We're interesting, and you might find real treasures. And if you've been in this more than a year, 
you're going to find that there are treasures in the body of Christ, people that you never would have guessed would have enriched your life. But because you're part of the family of God, you got to know them. You move past whatever reasons you might have had because this gathering is not natural. It's not based on natural categories. Come on, that right? It's based upon God has done something supernatural in people's lives and brings them together. And so we have this shared this shared experience and this shared family. And let's be reminded that if God is our Father, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we are united for God in Christ. And the fourth thing I think it means is that the church in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ is alive in God through Christ. And this suggests to me that all of life is from Him and is lived to Him. To him means something like all of our life is a response to what he's done. All of how we live is Godward. It's not selfward anymore. At least it shouldn't be. If it is, we need to we need to readjust the directional flow of our lives. It's not selfward, it's Godward. And it's poured out to others as well. But all of life is from God and to God. To God, right? Godward in our living? What are our decisions for? Are they for our glory or for God's glory? What are our plans for? Are they for just what we want, or do we take into consideration what would honor Him? So, you see, this is what it means to live, to, to be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in case I haven't mentioned this, this all implies that we have responded to Him with repentance and faith, and we've come to Him, trust in Him. This is the saved life to be in Christ. You can't, you can't be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ if you've never had that supernatural encounter of being born again. Are you with me? That there's a, a way in. Any other way in is the way of thieves. Okay, there is no other way in, really. If you're going to be a part of this, it comes through bowing our knee to Jesus, and repenting of our past sins, and trusting Him with our lives. See, Saving faith is not just the kind of faith that believes a creed. It's the kind of faith that believes the creed, but it also believes in a living Savior and is willing to entrust all of life to Him. It's good preaching, Pastor. All right, I'd like you to notice the next part of verse 1 here. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Okay, this is, a, this is Paul's prayer for them, his hope for them is that all that God has for them, they would be recipients of. And this is where we come into contact with the idea of superstitions, okay? So usually with superstitions, we're relying upon something else to bring us the good life or protect us from the bad life. Okay? You know what I mean by that? Like a, a lucky rabbit's foot or if I have this certain statue at the um, corner of my bed, then it'll protect me from evil spirits at night. And some people even use the cross in this way, like the cross is going to be some magical charm that's going to keep demons away or vampires or whatever it may be. And that's not really that's not really biblical faith. You understand that we're not trusting in objects like that. We're trusting in the living God who never sleeps. Remember Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. He never you will never sleep or slumber. You watch over me day and night. That's where our help comes from. It's not from some statue or object. It's not from, you know, having all the right numbers or whatever it may be. Uh, it comes from grace and peace to you from God our Father. Okay? I just want you to note, if you're reading an older translation, you may have from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a little bit of a red herring, but um, some of our best text scholars believe the evidence supports the shorter reading here and all of Paul's other writings, uh, it will say from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but our oldest and best manuscripts stop with that. But I want to say, in case that sounds offensive to you, that Paul believes that even here, that it's all of this grace and peace is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about a practical difference here, but this is what's stated here, grace and peace to you. And uh, if you want to see the fuller, start with Romans 1.7. You can see what it says there. And the meaning is the same. What does it mean that Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, grace and peace to you? And I think what it means is that he wants, 
He wants uh, them to know where all of the goodness of God comes from and that he wants them to experience the fullest measure of Christ. It doesn't come from the local gods. It doesn't come from making sure that they burn incense to this uh, deceased ancestor. It doesn't come from any of those things. The real goodness of God, the real fullness of life, it comes through Jesus Christ, through his grace and peace. With me? Okay, it's true. It comes from his grace and his peace. When we hear grace, um, you know, and, and that's the other thing. It doesn't come from good luck charms or any of that. When we hear grace, it comes uh, to mean all that Christ offers. This is a shorthand for salvation. Okay, and we often uh, think of grace as unmerited favor. Okay, that, and that's true of grace. But if we stop there, we, I think we rob ourselves of something because when we think of unmerited favor, that what that means is that God, God gives us favor or His goodness, even though we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We haven't bought it. We haven't earned it in some way. God is just good that way, that because of Christ, the obstacle of sin could be removed and he could lavish his kindness upon us. So that's the good news. That's what grace is. It's not just that we don't deserve it. If we just focus upon that, that it only gets one side of the benefit here. When we talk about all the favor of God, it means that we live under under God's uh, smile. Paul, uh, Paul. It was Joe the other day who said um, he was talking about the, the Hebrew concept of God turning his face or turning his face away. I don't know if you remember that, but it was uh, either last week or the week before he was talking about that. And, and that's a real concept is that to show favor is to cause his face to shine. And maybe a way we would say that is for God to smile at us. Okay, Maybe that's a little too... Uh, human-like, but he turns his face upon us in a gracious way, and that means his disposition is not turned towards wrath and anger anymore, but is turned towards favor. Okay, and he wants to he wants to do what's what's good. He wants to pour out upon us his blessings. And I'm not suggesting to you some kind of weird um, prosperity message where. If you're a Christian, there's never a bad day or there should never be a difficulty in your life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that he has good things in store for our life despite the fact that we still live in places like Thessalonica, okay? Despite the fact that we still live in places like Anchorage where there's trouble, there still is a goodness of God that can be poured into our lives because of his grace. And his grace not only meets us in our need for salvation, but every other need that we have. If you need to minister to someone, he has charismata, grace gifts for you. That's what that means. He can use grace gifts. If we have need of an answer for prayer, we can, uh, we can go before the throne of grace and receive grace, his favor, in our time of need. This is all part of that. It's not just grace for salvation. It's also grace for everything from salvation to heaven. Everything that we need in him. That's what his grace does. It's God's sufficient supply directed towards us because of what Christ has accomplished. And so when Paul says grace to you, he's talking about everything that's good. It's not coming because we've we've got we've wore a cross around our neck or if you do that that's fine but let's understand God's grace doesn't come from that you, you know what I mean it's not because we have a cross up here it's not because we've gathered in this particular anointed building it's because God's favor has shined upon you through Christ this is the grace that Paul is saying grace to you I want you to have and experience all of God's favor in his varied degrees. Look, it's monochromatic. It's not monochromatic. It's multichromatic. It's polychromatic. All of the wonderful colors that God can display upon us. Okay, so I want you to know it's grace to you. And grace is first. When we talk about grace, it's shorthand for that salvation, that fellowship, that supply of every need that he's able to bring is coming because... He gives it even though we don't deserve it. Thank God for that. Okay, and I don't know if you maybe take a moment to describe where the word grace comes from 
Grace comes from the word, actually, uh, the word kara, first of all. I don't know if you knew this, but kara means delight or joy. Did you know that? So <laughs> when you think about that, grace is what can bring joy. Okay, so then the movement of this word shifts a little bit to uh, showing favor and kindness, especially God's kindness, providing for the spiritual needs of sinners. And all of that is provided by God for our needs. It's that which causes joy. And uh, it, I think that's the end result of it all, is that because of His grace, we can experience all of God's joy, the best that He has to offer in life. Okay. And peace, grace and peace. Grace has to be first. You can't, you can't live in the peace of God without grace. Well, give me a few moments to unpack this because this is really important. Grace comes first. You can't have the peace of God just by saying, Lord, you know, take away my problems and do all of this. We need, first of all, to experience the grace of salvation. And then the peace of God can begin to settle into our lives the way that it should. Okay. Before we make up our mind about what peace is, um, we should understand that the Hebrew word for peace is, and you know it, what is it? Go ahead and say it out loud if you know it. Shalom. Shalom. And this was a, a greeting. And the term refers to far more than the absence of war or conflict or stress. It might be like, God, I need your help. Serenity. Give me serenity for this present situation. But it means a lot. It means a lot more than that. Shalom's basic meaning is the positive presence of harmony, which is unity, cooperation, good relations, wholeness, good purpose, well-being, contentment in all areas of life. So I would ask you, based on that, are we living in the fullness of his peace? Have we found the contentment that there is in being in God? And, and I think that part of the problem when we read peace and and this is one of the reasons why I spend time trying to unpack the historical significance is that I think we get the message better if we get it as close as we can to the first hearers. So listen, when we hear peace, a lot of times we read into this the absence of conflict. Like, why can't there just be peace? Or we hear John Lennon, all I'm saying is give peace a chance. That's wonderful. But there's still something fundamentally wrong with us. Even if we don't have wars happening, there's wars inside of us. There's a war between us and God until we find, until we've turned and repented and come to Christ. We were living as rebels, and God was against us, and we were against God. And there was enmity. That's the way James calls it, is enmity between humanity and, and God. And so there's all of these problems that are dealing with us on the inside. And so when we think about peace... Um, we often think about it as the absence of conflict, and that's how the Greeks saw it too, as they saw it as we do, um, and not as the presence of something, but the absence of something, the absence of conflict. And what Paul has done here is to take a Greek word and put into it a Hebrew meaning of blessing. A person who has peace is made whole and complete. And I, I think a lot of people search for peace and Probably these Thessalonians, they knew a lot of people who were running around to different altars. Usually what happened with the gods in Greece was that one day of the month was dedicated to them. That's what I was talking about earlier. And so on that day, you offered um, a sacrifice or burned incense to that. And because there were so many, sometimes you had to overlap, and there'd be two or three different gods on a particular day. And you needed to burn the incense to them or sacrifice to them so that that god didn't get angry with you and take out punishment upon you, some kind of retribution. So people are running around their whole lives living in that kind of fear. Like if I miss something, if I get sick or something and I can't do the sacrifice, calamity is going to rain down upon me. That's a terrible way to live. And sometimes we live that way. Like I need to have all of these little things taken care of. I need to have, my, um, need to have all these different areas of trust in place. It's not just God, but I need to trust in my government, and I, which is good, yeah, and my uh, 401K, and that's fine to store up money, and I need to trust in, in this and this. And if any one of those begins to topple, we see that the dam has opened up and the floodwaters are coming in. And it's all right to, to invest in areas for areas of security, but we better know that our chief area of trust is in the Lord. That's where our peace comes from. 
And if any of those others should give way, remember Psalm 46? Um, God is my refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Okay? So we can know where our real trust is when, when Jeremiah sees Jerusalem burning because the Babylonians have come in to destroy it. He's, he looks and he says, yet in all this, great is your faithfulness. You are my portion, O Lord. <laughs> can you imagine everything you know is on fire and burning? The people you know, many of them have died. And Jeremiah can look out and stay, still say, I can be well in God. I can be well in Him. A lot of people are looking for a peace like that. They're looking for peace, peace with ourselves and peace with others and peace with God. And sometimes we feel like we're entitled to peace. Some dictators enforce peace with guns and secret police in search of a utopia where it's all peace. And Rome promised to all of its citizens peace. Jerusalem means the city of peace, but I, has any city in the world ever seen more war? See, the city of peace might have might be the most fought-over piece of real estate in all the world. And Jesus, when he came through there in Luke chapter 19 on the way to the cross, it says that he wept over it. And he said, if you had only known, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when uh, your enemies will build embankments against you and encircle you and him you went on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, and you and your children with you within the walls, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Peace comes with Christ. And you might object that he said he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, but and that's true, but in a particular way, what he really came to do was to save people and to bring them into true and lasting shalom. Are you with me? And, and that at times creates momentary conflict within a family because you have a father who isn't serving the Lord and a son who is, and they don't see eye to eye, and so there's conflict in that moment, but there can still be peace in hearts, you understand. And so first we need peace in our hearts with God, it's, and, and that's what I, I would suggest is that first Peace is, is given from God and then extended to others if we're going to really possess this kind of peace. And it has to first come from God because our sins have been forgiven by grace from God's side. The bad blood, bad blood is, uh, is a figure of speech that refers to like ill intentions or animosity that's there. We have bad blood between God and us. It's been removed and that comes from alienation, antipathy, apathy, antagonism from our side. And it comes from God's wrath against sin, which must be responded to in justice. But he gave us a gift of reconciliation with all of its implications that that relationship's been restored and we can have all the blessings that we need. I need to make something clear that I think will help us out. The peace I'm talking about is not primarily the feeling of peace. Come on, listen to this. There is a peace that can come with God where you can feel you can feel at ease. Okay? There is that. But that's not primarily what it is. The first thing that needs to take place is a reconciliation of relationships. The peace I'm talking about is primarily not the feeling of peace. Primarily, uh, of course, means first. It's not first a feeling of peace. We live in what's been called by some sociologists the therapeutic age, and uh, that means that we feel how we feel about ourselves is one of our top values. Um, would you be surprised to find out it's not always been that way? This is my little soapbox here, so if you've heard it before, store it in the memory file here. But in other ages, the top priorities would have been things like being a virtuous person or your duty to the community or the family. But the most important thing um, today seems to be how do I feel about our, how do I feel about myself? And in fact, a lot of people I know I know for a fact a lot of people base their relationship with God on how they feel at any moment, and that's really really sad and dangerous. 
because we don't always feel the way that we should feel in light of the truth. Come on, isn't that true? Like, have you ever uh, given a Christmas gift? I've been on the other side of this as a kid, received a Christmas gift that I should have been thankful for, but I wasn't. And later on, I was going to be really glad I had it, but at the moment, I was only concerned about something else. We don't always feel the way that we should at any particular moment. And we should feel that sense of peace that our sins have been forgiven and everything is taken care of. But more important than that is the reality that peace has been gained between us and God because of Jesus. Okay, so that's the most important thing. It's not how we feel about ourselves. It's how God sees us. To put it another way, a thing that will matter most at the end of life is not whether we've pleased ourselves, but whether we found that God was pleased with us, and he can't be pleased with us in our sin because it's an offense to his holiness. So if sin broke the relationship and took away peace and blessing and created in its place hostility and curse, then the, then the response to that is for God to come and to bring peace, which he did. Ephesians 2 spells that out. We don't have time for all that today, but uh, look there. Jesus did that by taking our punishment upon himself thereby extending an olive branch so that we could have peace with God. And this is what, this is a fact about a relationship. I said it wasn't primarily a feeling of peace. In fact, there's a verse in uh, 1 John 3.20. You might want to write this down. This is a really good one. That suggests that we may not always feel the peace of God. Okay, this is, we're going down the home stretch here. So hold with me for a, a moment or two. It tells us there that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows us. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Okay, 1 John 3.20 tells us that. And what that suggests is that we will not always feel at peace a heart even at times can accuse us falsely and wreak havoc on our emotional peace. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, it can do that. Uh, and there is a false accusation that comes and the enemy is behind it. And I don't think only is it the enemy behind it. I think sometimes we are behind it. If we get a little bit tired and we lose a little bit of perspective on it, we can start to find ourselves accusing ourselves. And the enemy will jump right on that. He loves that. He wants nothing more than to bring us down. He'll do it uh, through some kind of self-pity or he'll do it through some kind of false, uh, false um, accusation. And so if you've known this, let me suggest to you grace and peace today. Because the comfort John gives in his letter is that God is greater than our heart and he knows us. Someone described it this way. That if, and I know we're talking about First John here, but if our heart is the accuser, then we have ourselves as the defendant and God as the judge. And what we must do, and he tells us this right in that context in First John 3, that we must set our hearts at rest with this. Listen, John says, I know we're out of Thessalonians, but this applies. John says, set your hearts at rest with this, that if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Now, if there's real sin, he's given us a solution for that too. What's the solution? Confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if it's a false accusation, entrust that too to God and realize that God is greater than a heart, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he can take care of even that, and peace can begin to settle in. There is a real and a false guilt and the answer is the same. It's to entrust ourselves to him. I've talked to a lot of people who struggle with this, and I'm no stranger to it myself. Not feeling at peace with God can be very, very discouraging. And what you need to hear today is that grace comes in peace. Peace is the reconciliation of relationship. And it's not a felt thing immediately. It's an objective fact. Okay? You've probably heard of battles or wars where somebody, I heard about uh, during World War II, uh, a Japanese soldier ending up on an island all by himself. He didn't know the war was over, that the two nations had been reconciled, but he was still in his mind fighting the battle. 
you know what I'm talking about, but he still thought there was an enemy out there, and he lived in a cave for several years. If I'm not mistaken, it was more than a decade, living by himself, thinking the war was still going on. And sometimes we need to know that the objective fact is that the war, if you're trusting Christ, the war's over. God is for you. And so maybe we need to settle our hearts with that. This tells me that we need to preach to ourselves sometimes. We need to say to ourselves, soul, heart, <laughs> like David did, why are you downcast? I will yet praise him. Or, look, God has provided peace, and I know I've confessed every known sin to him. I therefore will let peace settle into my heart. And for me to know the, the subjective feeling, the, the personal feeling, along with the objective truth. The truth has been established in Christ, but we got to get on board with that. You know what I mean? That he's accomplished that on our behalf. That's why it's so very important to know this, because we value so highly how we feel that we can interpret our relationship with God by how we feel about it. And that's not usually an accurate, accurate guide to truth, especially in matters of faith. So this piece is the wholeness of self and the wholeness of relationship. And this is peace that can settle into our heart, not the absence of conflict uh, solely. It's not only being done with battle with God and other people, but it's also being the recipient of all that that peace entails. It can be yours because because of Christ's wholeness and well-being. He can begin to do the restoring work in your life. It's not going to come from all the other things we trust in. It's not going to come because we've avoided the cracks on the sidewalk. Like we can feel really good about ourselves because we didn't step on any of the cracks. Because if you step on the crack, you break grandma's back. And nobody wants that to happen, right? So it's not because any of any of that. It's because God is for us, and he's established that fact in Jesus. He sent Jesus so today, I want to I wanted to come and share this. We're going to be a little bit in Thessalonians, unless the Lord should direct something different for a service. We're going to be there, just kind of working through this letter for until we're done. Um, but I wanted to come and bring this encouragement that we we look at what God has accomplished for us. We realize that what He's done for us is big, and all these other little confidences we have are so small in comparison. They don't bring the good life. It said that magnifying the Lord is to make him big in our estimation. Okay? We need to do that when it comes to his, his grace and his peace. Amen. All right, stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention today. We live a lot of times with idols of imagination more than objects. We tend to be more abstract in our devotion than a lot of those that Paul would have originally written to. He would have written to people who had actual statues sitting in their homes, and they represented some God somewhere that would protect them from this calamity or that calamity, and calamity at sea and calamity on land, calamity in the farm, and calamity in the house and in the marketplace and all those different places. And uh, when Paul wrote to them, they turned away from all their old trusts. Imagine that, to just one day say, nope, not trusting in those things anymore. It's all in God. I'm going to trust the Lord. That's what I think we all need to do is we need to realize that there are other things that we can do to help our lives, but our main trust needs to be in him. And so today, let's make him big in our imagination and, and get rid of the idols of our imagination, ideas that keep us from really serving God, concepts that of life that say, I can't really be happy unless this. Okay, If God's not the not at the end of that sentence, there's something wrong with it. Come on. Can we be happy in spite of whatever it is? If God's in our life, if Christ is is in our heart, can we still not just be happy, but be whole? What is it that we rely upon? So we have idols of imagination that I think we need to cast down. I think Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he talks about the preaching of Christ casting down evil imaginations, things that people have said, I have to have this in order to be whole, that are not Christ. And the wrecking ball comes through with the preaching of the gospel and says, no, one trust, one hope, one need in our lives is Him. 
And I think the proper response to him today is if you find that the Holy Spirit's speaking to you about some area of false trust is to cast that idol down and to turn to him and embrace him. And then I think a second response is maybe you've done all that is to acknowledge and worship. He's the one true God. We've been teaching that. We were teaching that to our kids at VBS, the one true God. Man, that's a truth that grows with us. Just like Lucy looks at Aslan and says, you look bigger. So I'm not bigger. You've grown. He's the kind of God that grows with us in our, in our estimation. He's always big. It's just that we don't always have eyes to see it. So God, help us to see that today, to acknowledge you and worship. If you see anything in our heart that's in competition with you for our allegiance, our trust, our wholeness, maybe we've been in the past, we've been mistreated, and we're holding on to that as part of our identity and We can't let that go. We can't be whole. I pray, God, that you would take that. That that can become a fascination, too. That can become an idol. It can become part of our identity. I pray that you help us to let go of those old hurts and those old trusts. Those old good luck charms and confidences that stand in the way of you being all in all. And I pray, God, you help us to respond today proper worship, which starts with trusting in you, grace and peace. We ask, Lord, pour that out in abundance because of Jesus. Help us to walk as the church in the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.